Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is September 8th, Wednesday. And I think a lot of us might be feeling a very similar uh, vibe right now. Doom and gloom, existentialism. I know it's been in the back of my mind for a very long time, basically since like, I don't know, maybe watching The Inconvenient Truth, to be honest, um, understanding just how significant climate change uh, was and how out of out of touch our governments were in handling it, but we're living through it right now. And we have been living through it for, for decades at this point. Um, simultaneously, we're living through multiple crises, an economic crisis, a p- pandemic that is really just perpetuating because of misinformation and brainwashing um, by the far right. He wants to maintain power and control. You know, much of our climate disaster is because of the same reasons. You have a far right that is in cahoots with, with capital who is unwilling to make significant changes to affect their bottom line for this quarter. And of course, that leads to the demise of humanity, um, humankind and humanity, I say. All while we have migrants and refugees who are expected to be moving from Afghanistan uh, into multiple regions of the world, which are no longer accepting refugees. Right here where I am in Europe, as you all know, I've been here for the last, uh, for the summer. Greece is no longer accepting refugees to Turkey. There's a question of human rights law being violated, international law. But they've decided with their center-right government, that center-right government needs to stay in power based off of a far-right extremist base, a base that doesn't want to see refugees. Not only are they shutting down the camps and is the EU no longer giving money to bring in refugees, but the government here is being so generous to give the refugees 150 euros for one month to find a job and housing. The economic crisis in Greece and everywhere really, but in Greece really has not gone away since the debt crisis of 10 years ago when they had the referendum. Greeks, Greek citizens are struggling to make more than 800 euros a month, and that is a good salary. Most people make a few hundred euros a month. How on earth do they expect, does this right-wing government expect refugees to relocate, find housing, and a job all within a month? And what happens if they don't? Where do they go? Do they go to another EU country? No, actually, they're not allowed to. Do they go back home? Of course not. Because so many have left their homes because of, 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 of disasters and war and starvation. We've lost our humanitarianism in this, this democratized world that we, we claim that we are, in this Western world. What a semblance of humanitarianism that we had post-World War II is really dissipating. Even in the countries that they say people are the healthiest, the strongest, you know, they're the happiest. Even in Europe, even in Sweden, which has a far right, even in Northern Europe, where, you know, supposedly the happiness index is, is much larger. 
the far right's politics, even if it's a minority, has strangled any sort of progress. And when we're dealing with so many crises at once, and governments are stalled all over, and misinformation is spreading way faster than somebody can tie a shoelace, it spreads in a nanosecond. How do we get out of this? And that just goes back to my original point of, you know, a few days ago on Twitter as New York was underwater, as reproductive rights were sent back to 1969 in, in Texas, as the hurricane had ravaged the South, as fires are across California once again, too many people I saw, smart friends, journalists, politicians, were talking about the future of this planet in real time, not some esoteric theory, but about real time. Is it worth it? What are we doing? What can we do? And you even saw Joe Biden today announce a new set of climate change proposals that are more aggressive than, frankly, any president has done, but still not enough. And as he said, it's only going to get worse. He said that as he was going through Queens, Queens, New York, my neighborhood, seeing the absolute destruction that came with a storm that nobody predicted. That is the new norm. We are all in this together. Rich, poor, of course, those on the front lines are the people who cannot afford to rebuild their house or live in the basement dwellings in New York City, can't afford storm panels or or yachts to escape on when uh, you know jumping from climate crisis to climate crisis. We don't have expensive insurance policies, but ultimately nobody is spared. Of course, climate change, economic injustice, the pandemic are all affecting the most vulnerable people in our communities. And that is why it is so important that we keep our eye on the ball. Otherwise, why are we doing this? What is this for? I'll talk more about my own personal existential crisis on this Friday's Fem Friday. Uh, so make sure to check out Fem Friday this Friday. Uh, and then just a little special programming note, I am going to be off next week taking a uh, vacation. I know I've been here, but I've been working, which I'll talk about on Friday. As you know too well, um, I'm going to be taking off a week before jumping right back into things. So make sure um, to check out our exclusive interviews that we have backed up for next week. You definitely want to watch them. We've been interviewing, um, doing these interviews all week. So you have some, some quality content next week. Uh, so definitely go check that out. We have a great show today. We have Andrew Fishman, Eileen Brown, and our panel with Arun Chowdhury and Rep Rab. We're going to be talking about climate change, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and how the Line 3 pipeline is being intercepted, <laughs> shocker, uh, totally intercepted by Minnesota law enforcement that is sharing intelligence on protest organizers with the pipeline company. So stick around for that. Andrew Fishman is a contributing writer for The Intercept. Uh, he was a former managing editor of The Intercept Brazil. Uh, his reporting focused on security technology, human rights, Brazil, and documents leaked by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. Oh, I've heard of him. Uh, he has a piece out right now in, in The Intercept uh, titled Brazil's Indigenous Groups Mount Unprecedented Protest Against Destruction of the Amazon. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Um, I feel like I'm just going to change the name of the show to doom and gloom with no me because <laughs> I'm just like, and this week's climate disaster crisis, that's making us feel like we have absolutely no control of our, our futures. Um, <laughs> but your piece is actually like a very, it, it's, 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 it's a very textured, um, it's, it's, it's illustrative. Uh, it, it's illustrative of how we kind of got into this situation. There's politics, there's power, there's indigenous, um, you know, populations who've been fighting. And, and of course, you know, the Amazon, which is extremely important for our ecosystem and survival. And um, so I, you know, before we even get into to what's, what's happening currently, can you just give um, our audience a little bit of a, a here's her background on Bolsonaro's rise to power uh, and where he stands today and how that kind of relates to this topic. Sure. So there was, uh, you know, very broad strokes. There was a a, a center-left government that was in power, the Workers' Party, uh, for they won uh, multiple elections in a row, four elections in a row. And they, there was this right-wing backlash that began using a uh, the pretext of, of corruption, um, it started in like 2014, 2013, 2014, and it, and it grew. And, and as part of this movement, there was uh, a, a trial that was able to um, take former president Lula da Silva, who was going to run for office in 2018, and it made him ineligible. The, the case was eventually thrown out. But in that, in that interim, with this you know, rising right-wing reactionary uh, movement that was that was growing, uh, Bolsonaro was able to win the election with the path cleared from him with Lula out of the way. And he came into power on this uh, anti-corruption front, but he also had, which is you know very uh, specious because all of his allies are corrupt and he's accused of mountains of corruption himself. But on top of that, he's also was you know, extremely racist, extremely homophobic, extremely uh, you know, regressive and, and right-wing reactionary. He's, he was a big supporter of Trump um, and so he came in saying from the very beginning that, you know, uh, when I'm president, there won't be a single centimeter of land given to indigenous populations and we're going to cut all the funding to NGOs and we're going to get rid of environmental regulations and, and basically everything that um, very similar to what, uh, you know, Trump was pushing in the United States, except he's, he's far more extreme. And, you know, Brazilian democracy is a far younger institution than it is in the United States. And so the institutions are, are less Solid, and so he's been able to really, you know, roll back all regulations and and just push through very uh, regressive uh, policies. And on top of that, he's had the you know the big agro lobby and the evangelicals in Congress who are you know together represent the majority, um, working together with the oligarchs to to basically you know run roughshod over over human rights, and and that's what we've been living since 2019. I mean, just to give this a little bit more flavor in, in terms of the institutions, I mean, it's a democracy and obviously the population of Brazil is, is extraordinary, um, but in size, but the, I remember watching these trials and I was so confused how the prosecutor could also like be the judge, like what is going on? <laughs> it's not a clean justice system either. It's sort of like kabuki theater. Right. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of judges and, and legal experts in Brazil were also pretty confused. <laughs> uh, they, they they this process is called Operation Car Wash um, and involved uh, uh, former President Lula, but it also involved some of the biggest um, construction firms and companies in in Brazil. Um, they they created a lot of let's say innovations in the justice system, and and one of the innovations included this this very like. 
antagonistic uh, judge who was, you know, interrogating, you know, used to in the United States, you have the prosecution interrogates, uh, the defense defends, and, and the judge just kind of rules, um, you know, strikes and balls there. But in this case, you had, you know, the judge interrogating Lula for four hours during one day and, and really grilling him. And it was clear to any, you know, lay observer that he was taking a side with the prosecution, you know, and he was becoming extremely famous and, and lauded internationally because of his role in this corruption trial. And so he also had a personal investment in this. Um, and so that was one of the many things that we were able to reveal at the Intercept Brazil in 2019 when we got a, this whole uh, archive of, of their conversations between the prosecutors and Judge Sergio Moro. We were able to show that they were, in fact, colluding behind the scenes. They were He was directing them and how to act. And it was uh, in ways that uh, were unconstitutional in Brazil and illegal. And, and that's why these, these rulings against Lula were, were eventually thrown out. And now he's the, the, leaning, the leading candidate for the election next year against Bolsonaro. Um, okay, so let's let's move this to present day, uh, what's happening in the Amazon and, and Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro's moves and conflicts of interest too. Um, you know, it seems as if he's flexing his muscles in anticipation of an election in which he could very well lose based on the the, the the initial polling um it, it, does that seem to be why he's 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 doing this or is this just typical bolsonaro yeah i mean bolsonaro's never been a big fan of democracy and, and that's been clear he was that he came up uh, as a politician you know through the as a as a military man and he was a big fan of the military regime um he won democratically but uh, you know, even during that election his many of his supporters were calling for either uh, the return to the monarchy or a you know a new uh, military coup and new military dictatorship, and so and like who wants that? Like, I mean, that's even it just depends. Like in the United States, like I love it when you have the far right be like they're like you know the left those communists they want a military. Coup. We're like no, that's you, you idiots. Like nobody in the states, I think fundamentally wants that. So if you actually want that and you don't understand who's behind it. If you want to crush your enemies and you think the military uh, agrees with you and is on your side, then I, I suppose it makes sense. But I mean, anybody who's not uh, an oligarch or, you know, owner of a factory is is probably uh, deceiving themselves because, you know, the last military coup, the first thing they did was they they slashed workers' rights. They, they repressed, you know, unions and they, they ended up cutting salaries for people. And so it was actually very bad for people. But at the same time, they were able to censor the press. So that wasn't the story that was told. And that's not, that's not the story that a lot of people remember. Right. Right. Um, but, um, okay. So, yeah, go ahead, sorry. so, so what's happening right now is you have a, you know, largest uh, protests, native protests blocking what um, is his goal to essentially exterminate the indigenous population. What, what led to this moment? Like, how did this come about? Um, Basically, the the agro lobby, uh, you know, which is the major one of the major industries in Brazil, the biggest exporter, um, they see this Bolsonaro government as their big opportunity to really push through all the things that they weren't able to do with previous governments. Um, and so they've been passing this whole slew of, of uh, legislation that they've been trying to get passed that's really chipping away at indigenous rights and indigenous land rights that, you know, uh, big agro and mining and logging can come in and take indigenous lands and indigenous lands are the, you know, the most protected lands in all of the Amazon. Um, so right now there's this case in the Supreme Court where a, a indigenous uh, group is trying to get their land formally recognized and 
but part of that land was given to uh, farmers. And the argument is that since they weren't on the land in 1988, uh, when the constitution was signed, therefore it's not their land and they're trying to make this a precedent for, for all other lands. So a lot of, because you know, a lot of indigenous uh, communities weren't on their ancestral lands in 1988 because they had gone through decades uh, uh, during the military dictatorship, but centuries of genocide, of you know, repression, of, of armed paramilitary gangs pushing them off their lands so that they can take those lands to, to farm on. Um, and so right now, the you know, all of the indigenous communities of, of Brazil from all over have unified and they've gone to Brazilia to, to protest this uh, case in the Supreme Court because if this were to pass, they say that this is going to be the genocide of many indigenous peoples in Brazil. And beyond that, it's going to be you know, the destruction of the Amazon. We're, we're very, very close to what scientists say is a tipping point where if you, you know, deforest so much that the, the ecosystem entirely will collapse and there's no return from that. And it's going to turn into a, a big savanna. And the Amazon is, you know, the source of water of, for the entire continent, aside from the, the global environmental impacts that it would have if, if that carbon sink were to be erased. So, I mean, and beyond that also, uh, Brazil is run off of hydroelectric power. So all industry would be, you know, completely obliterated. They wouldn't have power. The cities wouldn't have water. There would be, you know, this massive environmental catastrophe. But there's people making money off of this. And the prices for soy exports, because the, the currency here is quite low right now, uh, are higher than ever. And so these people, uh, these farmers are, are flush with cash and their lobbies are, you know, putting people into the Congress and they're pressuring the Supreme Court. And they're the ones that are, you know, the main adversaries to the indigenous groups right now, the, the big agro groups. Um, the ones that are exporting to to China and to Europe and the United States, um, and and they're the ones that the indigenous groups are fighting against right now. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, six thousand representatives of half of the indigenous groups in Brazil came to the capital, Brasilia, to to protest and and to show that they're you know unified in, in against this measure and and trying to you know get international attention. Um, and, you know, 6,000 people doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider that there's only 900,000 indigenous people in Brazil, it's actually phenomenal. I mean, there's people that, that came in on buses uh, four days over land, you know, risking getting shot at by paramilitary groups or stopped. Um, and all these people coming together are speaking, you know, dozens and dozens of different languages. Uh, you know, I, I was there for for many days and it was it was really inspiring that, you know, that this, the, the, the power and the resistance that they that they had in the face of this massive enemy that they're facing. Um, when you say that they were at risk of being shot by paramilitary groups, under under what like what, what law are they allowed to do that? I mean, are they? It's one thing for the paramilitary groups to target, which they've done over over decades, but to just as they're like on a bus, what, how is that possible? So, you know, the much of the Amazon is basically the Wild West in terms of uh, law enforcement goes. And so there are tens of thousands of illegal miners and loggers and farmers that are invading indigenous territories and taking their land and, and exploiting it in ways that are it's totally illegal. The Bolsonaro government has entirely or almost entirely um, gotten rid of enforcement mechanisms. So, you know, all the federal police raids and, and the um, the, the different ministries that are supposed to be making sure, ensuring the, the rights of, of indigenous Brazilians, they've been uh, totally stripped away, just like uh, Trump did with the environmental regulations in, in the U.S. And so, you know, if, if you have a lot of money and you have 
money to, you know, influence local police forces or buy them off or even hire them to be your, you know, your guns for hire, then, you know, these tribes, there's constantly trying to pressure them to, to force the indigenous groups to leave. So if they leave their territory and they go into the territory of the farmers that have these paramilitaries, uh, you know, they'll shoot at them. They'll, they'll threaten them. They'll, they'll try to harass them in many ways. And, and there's actually been a huge rise in, in violence on indigenous territories with many people being killed and environmental activists being killed by these guns for hire for big agro. Um, all right. So there's the Supreme Court is, is meeting today, right? What's, what's, uh, what is that going to determine? And, and we don't know yet. Let's just be very clear that we're pre-taping um, as, as our audience knows pretty well. But what, what might be decided? Yeah, so this is the they've already delayed this ruling four times, but it's it's this case about. And, um, and why? Why did they delay it? Well, <laughs> that's uh, up to debate, but I think it seems pretty clear that uh, and the, the agro lobby has has come out openly saying this in their own internal press that uh, they want this ruling to be delayed because they know that the court will rule in favor of indigenous rights and in accordance with the constitution. And the agro lobby has much more power in the Congress. And so they'd rather that this case be kicked down the road by, by the court so that the Congress can pass a law that's basically ruling on the, on the same issue, um, which would make it more difficult or less likely for the Supreme Court to rule against them. If the court is to rule, it'd be much harder for the Congress to, to pass this law saying that uh, indigenous rights begin in 1988. And if you're not on this land in 1988, then it's, then it's not your land. Um, it doesn't go with the Constitution. It doesn't make any sense with, uh, with you know, how the situation has played out over the centuries. And, and as they say, you know, our history doesn't begin in 1988. We've been here. We've been resisting for 15,000 years. Um, and the Constitution is specific about this, that, that the rights of indigenous peoples in Brazil predates uh, the Constitution and, and their laws. Fascinating. Okay, so, so the ruling... Um... Is expected today, or is it going to be another kick it down the, you know, kick the can down the, the curb? What is that? What is the line? <laughs> kick the can <laughs> the down can. the road. Down the road. Thank you. My goodness. <laughs> uh, they're expected to rule to to retake the ruling today, but any of the judges, any of the ministers, can say, "I need more time. I'm going to study this more." Wait, wait. Ministers that, are judges. Let's just yeah. The, this the Supreme thing. Court uh, ministers. Uh, okay, got it. Justices. Um, can say any more time and, and just, you know, put the hold on this or, and that's, that's what's happened multiple times. And that's what the big agro lobbies have, they've been lobbying for them to do. Um, are the justices partisan? Like how is the justice system set up, uh, at the Supreme court level? I mean, we saw what happened when Lula was, was on trial. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're appointed by, by the sitting presidents, like they're on the U S um, you know, in the U.S., you try to pretend like there's this impartiality and it's, it's purely based on, on you know, interpretation of, of legal precedent. But obviously, anyone can see in 2021 that that's not the case in the U.S. and that's not the case here. And here, I think there are even more um, there. There's less pretense. Um, the, you know, the justice system is clearly a political actor. They're, they're clearly, you know, they what they choose to just rule on, what they choose not to rule on, they, they openly um, you know, have meetings with political leaders and, and uh, lobbies. And there's plenty of uh, stories about um, financial ties with, with different ministers. But yeah, they're, they're a political body and, and they make political rulings and they're influenced by the politics of the day. Um, and right now, I mean, they're the, the biggest 
the Supreme Court's the biggest uh, counterpoint to the Bolsonaro administration right now since the Congress is in this majority on, on his team. It, just, just so we have a sense, so the Congress is also up for election next year? Yeah, there will okay. be uh, congressional elections. And is there a Senate too? Like, what is the, the breakdown in terms of the balance of government? Yeah, the Senate's every eight years, um, the Congress is every four years. So there's going to be a big wave of elections. And so, uh, you know, many of these, the, the majority of the Congress is, is what's known as the Centrum, which is called like the big middle, but they're mm-hmm. not really like, it's not like they're moderates. They're just the, the ruling class. They're the, mm-hmm. the elected representatives of the oligarchy in Brazil. So they've been part of the ruling coalition of every government since redemocratization. Uh, so, you know, they're they're with the left, they're with the right, they're with, you know, whoever has power because they are the, you know, the financial power, the, rep- the political representatives of the financial power. And they they want to make sure that they can get their deals and, and get their interests represented. So uh, these same people that were with Lula and Dilma and the, and the center left are now m- many of them are with um, Bolsonaro right now. But since he's very much on the ropes, his popularity is declining. He's just been making all these, you know openly uh, coup-mongering statements saying that he'll never, he'll no longer respect rulings from the Supreme Court. Um, you know, they still have their interests that they need represented and protected, but at the same time, another interest they have is getting reelected uh, next October. So mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the massive protests that happened yesterday and in Bolsonaro's statements, now there's increasing talk about impeachment, which seems still seems unlikely. There's been dozens and dozens of uh, impeachment requests since he took office and they've all been uh, ignored by the leader of the of the lower house hmm. and yeah i mean it's it's this this impasse of of in brazilian politics where you know there's clearly this man that's not uh, apt to lead no one seems particularly interested in in letting his uh, vice president take over i mean he's he's a military guy who's made yeah. very extreme right-wing statements in the past and he doesn't really have a he's not an experienced politician, doesn't have a huge constituency. Um, and so it kind of seems like everyone's just, there's just this deteriorating political situation and everyone's waiting either for Bolsonaro to try a coup or uh, the election to come and him to, you know, bluff like like Trump did, saying that he wouldn't accept the ruling, but then he does. And so the next, you know, year, 13 months are going to most likely be the this continuing deterioration of of the political situation, um, which is crazy when you consider you know what Brazil used to be. I mean, under the Lula administration, Brazil was this leading light in in politics. This this new you know uh, pan South American cooperation that was uh, you know re- resisting U.S. Um, uh, hegemony in the region and was able to you know the economy was doing great. They were they were sent, giving money and 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 just everything just seems so positive and progressive. And at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. these big industry folks that are that have been supporting Bolsonaro, they were making uh, cash hand over fist. You know, they're making huge amounts of profits, record profits. Um, but they turned against them because they didn't like the social policies. They didn't like right. um, and, and, you know, the the economy started declining in 2014 under the PT, but also they didn't like that the Workers' Party was not blocking the car wash uh, corruption investigations right. because they were all implicated. So, right. so they, they, they moved to, to impeach Dilma Rousseff. Which was, a, a, was that, that, that documentary, was it uh, Democracy on Fire, is that what it's called? 
Yeah, I think so. And that was a fantastic documentary. Really high. It was from my perspective, at least, uh, just, you know, um, pulled back the curtain on, on just how these proceedings can go and also how misogynistic it was on top of it. Like clearly misogynistic. Um, Andrew, just uh, last question before we wrap, uh, international community are the Amazon, everybody has a stake in having a planet that breathes and has water. I mean, especially with, with the climate uh, initiatives that are, I think being amplified a little bit more in the last few weeks. Um, is there any sort of pushback from the international community? I mean, yes and no. Uh, the biggest buyer right now for these products from the Amazon is is China, and they're not, you know, putting much pressure on on Brazil for better environmental practices. But the EU has been, um, however, the European Union. But there are, you know, economic influences diminishing with time. Um, some companies have said that they're going to boycott certain goods. Uh, you know, the Biden administration is is no fan of Bolsonaro uh, and they've been pushing them on, on environmental issues, but they also have their own interests. They want, uh, you know, them to help them in their fight against China and, and to use U.S. allies for the 5G infrastructure. So there's this, you know, it's, it's not 100 um, uh, percent push pushing on, on uh, in the relationship. Uh, and right now, you know, when I was uh, in in Brasilia at the uh, Struggle for Life uh, Indigenous Encampment, there was a, a group called Progressive International that came in, uh, and they were working with different allies in Brazil and trying to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they said that when they leave, they're going to start uh, organizing a boycott against international financiers of mm-hmm. the destruction of the Amazon, uh, Blackstone, Cargill, mm-hmm. uh, JBS. Um, but you know, if without very serious pressure from from governments without sanctions and, and boycotts and and from corporations. I mean, basically, a lot of money is being made and and people aren't thinking about the long term consequences, but the long term consequences are going to be catastrophic. Absolutely. Andrew, really interesting reporting. Um, please keep us in the loop. Any developments that happen, I have no doubt that we're going to be reaching out again pretty soon. Um, you can check out Andrew's piece in The Intercept right now. And of course, this story is developing uh, in real time for the most part. It's in, uh, we'll have it in our our, our information section um, below the show, below the video, but it is in The Intercept titled Brazil's Indigenous Groups Mount Unprecedented Protests Against Destruction of the Amazon. Andrew Fishman, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Aline Brown is a reporter at The Intercept. Uh, she's a New York-based reporter focused on environmental justice issues. She's been on before to talk about Line 3 protests that are happening right now, and she's a piece out in The Intercept titled Minnesota Law Enforcement Shared Intelligence on protest organizers with Pipeline Company. I wish I could say I was shocked, but I'm not, especially given our last conversation we had uh, you know, a few months ago regarding what was happening with the um, you know, the intelligence that was being shared at that time. So Eileen, let's just Eileen, let's talk about what this protest is about, um, how significant it is, and then we can get into sort of the other stuff. Sure. Sounds great. Um, and thank you so much for having me again. Anytime. Um, so the protests happening in Minnesota right now that have been happening, um, most of this year or all of 2021 actually, um, are centered on this Enbridge line three tar sands oil pipeline. Um, and 
Well, one of the reasons it's a big deal is because um, it is one of the uh, fossil fuel infra- infrastructure projects um, being developed right now that has kind of the most potential to um, impact our climate um, because of the type of oil that it carries it will, would carry. Um, so tar sands oil has some of the, um, you know, most significant, uh, carbon emissions of any type of, um, uh, fossil fuel. And this project would, um, reroute an existing old corroded, uh, pipeline and double its capacity, uh, basically carrying tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada to, um, this, transport center uh, right on the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. So most of it's in Minnesota. Um, And people are fighting it for a few reasons. Um, One, of course, is this climate impact that I just talked about. Um, Another reason is because of the risk for um, oil spills. Uh, This company, Enbridge, has um, a pretty rough history where it comes to um, inland oil spills. Um, it is behind the what has been called the biggest um, inland oil spill in U.S. history. Um, real, real quick, inland. What is inland oil spill? Oh, I guess I mean just not in the ocean. Got it. Um, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, no big deal. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean it's not in water. So line three actually ruptured in um, the 90s, spilling, um, you know, a whole lot of oil in wetlands in northern Minnesota. So the same pipeline that's now dramatically expanding um, has spilled before. Uh, Enbridge is also behind another um, oil spill in the Kalamazoo River in Michigan, um, where, um, you know, again, I think I I would have to double check the numbers, but I think around a million barrels of oil, maybe more, uh, spilled into the Kalamazoo um, or a tributary. uh, And this heavy oil, again, this particular kind of oil sort of sunk to the bottom and was really hard to clean up. Um, so, you know, people fighting the pipeline call themselves water protectors, um, because the, the fight is really centered around protecting the water and protecting, um, wild rice that grows on a lot of lakes in, um, in Minnesota, which kind of, um, brings us to the third reason that a lot of people are fighting this pipeline, which has to do with indigenous people's treaty rights, Um, so a big chunk of this pipeline would pass through, um, the treaty territory that several Ojibwe tribes in Minnesota have rights to, um, you know, it's the, this isn't reservation land. It's land, um, that via, uh, I think various treaties, uh, these tribes have rights to, uh, hunting, fishing, um, gathering, um, and I believe traveling, um, and, uh, several of the tribes say that they've not been properly consulted, um, about bringing this pipeline through that territory and, you know, really don't want it there because they're worried about, um, this, this sacred food, the wild rice, um, and, and sort of other, um, other concerns. So, um, I mean, this is, it's a shame that we are now being so educated on how these protests go down and and the amount of um, 
money that's put in to monitoring protesters, water protectors, folks who are showing up in solidarity with the water protectors, filmmakers, journalists, et cetera. Um, this isn't a new like tactic, but but as you reported before last time you came on, it, it, it these are counterinsurgency tactics that have been pulled out of our efforts abroad, especially in light of Afghanistan and and, and uh, the conversations around that. So the latest development is uh, that the local law enforcement has been sharing uh, private information about many of the people they've been monitoring with Enbridge. And what is Enbridge supposed to do with that? I mean, isn't it? Is, first off, is that is that legal? Uh, and what do they do with it and why? Right, right. I mean, those are all great questions. I mean, in terms of legality, I think there are certainly concerns that attorneys have raised that um, this sort of collaboration between law enforcement and a private corporation um, is infringing on um, the rights of people expressing their First Amendment rights, um, you know, and sort of their constitutional right to gather, Um and so we'll sort of see what challenges arise related to, to this collaboration and this sharing of information. Um, you know, in terms of what Enbridge is supposed to do with this information, um, I guess it sort of comes back to this idea of, of counterinsurgency. I mean, really Enbridge's um, aim is to build local support for this pipeline of the, uh, both from politicians, but also from local people in communities. Um, so I think for them, I would imagine that knowing who is, um, who's doing this organizing and how they're, um, framing their fight, um, could be something that they would use as they develop their own sort of countermaneuvers. Um, I mean, what was really striking about this intelligence sharing that I reported on, uh, this was something that uh, came through a public information request that I did. Um, I did a series of requests right when construction started. So this is really something that was shared at the very big beginning of pipeline construction. We don't know how much has been shared since then. Um, and one, go ahead, sorry. Hang on. So, so this was shared at the beginning of pipeline construction. So this is just based on the the those who were there to protest initially, or did they anticipate certain people were going to protest and they developed dossiers or whatever it was on on them? Like how did how did that kind of unfold? I mean, I guess we know actually from previous reporting I did with um, my colleague Will uh, Will Parrish um, that. Uh, uh, there was monitoring of um, anti-pipeline organizers before con construction even began, or I guess construction in Wisconsin began a little bit earlier, so they were doing some, some work back then. Um, but I think that there was some effort to monitor social media and have a sense of who was going to be involved here before construction began. Um, in this case, this was... This was a local emergency manager um, who 
seemed to be based in one of the emergency operations centers that was set up to respond to um, pipeline construction and really the pipeline protests. Um, He was part of this multi-agency task force known as the Northern Lights Task Force that was set up um, among agencies in Minnesota, um, mostly a lot of sheriff's offices, also some uh, state-level emergency emergency management agencies. Um, So this guy's a member of this Northern Lights Task Force, and um, he's talking about these intelligence meetings that appear to be held regularly um, among um, members of this task force. Um, And he actually reaches out to uh, the security lead for the Enbridge's security lead for the Line 3 um, and invites him to attend Um, these 9 a.m. intel meetings. Um, And he goes so far as to say, hey, you know, we've missed you at these meetings. Um, Is there a time that would work for you? Or what would he say? What did he say? He said, what he said exactly was, we've missed you on our our nine o'clock intel meetings. Is there another time that would work better for you? It would be nice to have someone from your company on. The very next day, um, the same emergency emergency management coordinator um, copied the security lead on um, an email uh, that included a list of names of water protectors who had attended a line three organizing meeting the night before. Um, you know, and the this um, this list of names was attached to another email that had been forwarded on to the security lead as well as other Northern Lights Task Force members, um, and it's an emergency management director for the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, which um, has sort of agreed to allow Enbridge to pass its pipeline through the reservation after a lot of pressure and a lot of kind of money being offered up. Um, And this emergency management director says, you know, this is all I got from last night. That and a back of the head headache from the musical performances and guided breathing and stretching exercises. So clearly, this guy went to this meeting and it might have been a Zoom wow. meeting. I'm not sure and passed along this information um, under under like a false identity. I assume. I mean, we don't know. He might have just been like, "Yeah, I'm a local guy and I'm attending this." Um, I assume that no one anticipated he would be uh, then passing this list along to Enbridge. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an open question because, you know, these are small communities. Um, I'm sure mo- people in Fond du Lac know who this guy is, or I know they do. Um, so he could have been in a Zoom meeting with a false name. He could have been, um, you know, openly attending this meeting without, you know, noting that this would be shared with Enbridge. I have this. Okay. So, so we're, we're into, it's September 8th as we're filming today and this is airing on September 8th. And, you know, in a couple of days, it's going to be the 20th anniversary of t- September 11th. And I, like so many others are are reading, you know, articles about just the legacy of Afghanistan and the legacy of of what happened after 9-11. And of course, you know, the Associated Press won that Pulitzer about a decade ago uh, when they reported on the spying that was happening in Muslim centers um, in New York City in particular. Um, You know, and some of these centers were uh, places where they were just doing like food drives to, to, to hand out to their community. I mean, really, like nothing, like it, there was no, there was barely even a religious component to it. And yet you saw uh, 
members of the FBI, not only monitoring, but they had informants that were in these community centers directly communicating with um, the intelligence on the outside for whatever reasons, which we all know were completely, you know, uh, jumbled. But I bring this up not because, you know, we're, we're studying how movements get, this wasn't even a movement, this is just a community center, uh, get disrupted. But these are counterinsurgency tactics. And it's it just boggles my mind that they're, they continue to be used over decades and decades and decades when whatever their end goal is, it doesn't seem to work no matter what, or whether it's in, in the middle of war, whether it's in uh, communities that they think are, I don't know what threat uh, food pantry <laughs> was to anybody, um, or, you know, water protectors who are, are literally, you know, fighting, but Again, they're not going to not fight. They're still going to show up and fight. They still are. Other than intimidation and fear, but it's all it's all done in secrecy. And so that's what I don't understand. What is the end goal when the end goal has proven time and time again to not work? Because right. they can't murder people anymore, at least in, right. in the Western world. I mean, I think really the end goal is to get their pipeline built and to pump as much oil as they can out of the ground, transport it, get those contracts, get that money, you know, and this pipeline is the construction is almost done. You know, they're telling people that they may be pumping oil in October, whether or not that happens, we'll see. But, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline, people are still fighting it, but it was completed, you know, so sure, people. I mean, whether, I guess, <laughs> I mean, if you're thinking in terms of like war, you can think about like battles and the greater cause, you know, if the, if ultimately water protectors want to stop these projects from, from being built, you know, keep as much oil on the ground as possible um, and, you know, keep us with the most livable climate as possible. Um, you know, I think, I think there a lot of um, oil and gas and other resources have been kept in the ground. There have been pipelines that have been stopped. Um, there have been projects that have been stopped, really big ones. And so um, so who's winning, I think, is an open question. But if you're looking at this pipeline in particular, they it's a really like holistic approach that involves maybe getting this intelligence and having someone, a public official, infiltrating a meeting um, but it's also, you know, the work they're doing it, you know, to lobby in, in the Minnesota state legislator, or the late legislature, or the governor, it's, um, you know, making friends and communities and getting a local environmental organization to think Enbridge is their friend. Um, it's, uh, you know, um, PR campaigns and, you know, so it's this whole approach and that I don't think, I think, you know, a minor goal might be to stop this movement and stop water protectors from blocking construction. But the bigger goal is to just finish construction. And they say that they're moving toward that. And unless there's an intervention very soon, they may, they may end up pumping oil through that pipeline. Um, is there any sort of movement or response uh, from the department of interior, from uh, the energy department, from, Biden administration at all? Um, I don't believe there have been promising signs from the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they were basically 
they've sort of indirectly indicated that they support the pipeline moving along. You know, uh, various groups, including tribes, have been fighting the pipeline in court, saying that certain permits should be overturned. And um, the Biden administration has basically, you know, defended the, um, you know, what federal, I think at least one federal permit that was granted. So, you know, he's not saying much, but he's certainly not intervening to stop the pipeline. And, you know, this rhetoric around jobs has been really important here. Um, you know, Biden did step in and stop the Keystone XL pipeline. And um, a lot of workers' organizations, um, unfortunately, were not happy about that. And um, so I think that there's some real kind of liberal political maneuvering where it's like, okay, we stopped this pipeline, but I don't, I, I, it doesn't seem like he, he's cutting in here. And um, I think that jobs uh, rhetoric is, is a big part of that. Um, don't worry. He announced today that by 2050, um, 2050, 80% of our grid is going to be solar. So, right. You know, right. <laughs> see you underwater. Yeah. 2050. Thanks. If we still have a New York by then. <laughs> right. Right. Or and I California. mean, Minnesota, Minnesota, this place that's like thought of as kind of like lake country, really wet place is in the midst of a terrible drought. Um, you know, there's been wildfires up there. It's just, um, I don't know the status now, but all summer that's been the case. Um, so there, again, this point that there's no escape from the climate crisis and the people who are fighting for their land, the Ojibwe people fighting for their land are, you know, really looking at a, a crisis that is is coming home and is directly linked to projects like Line 3. Super interesting reporting. Thank you for being on top of this and keeping us up to date. Um, it's disheartening and hopefully something, you know, more pressure. I did see the squad went there and stood in solidarity. So, you know, that's the kind of pressure obviously we need and, and it, it does affect Biden. So maybe he will do something. Um, at least maybe the Department of Interior will uh, nudge him a little bit. So thank you so much for, for doing this reporting, Aline. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Right, take care. Take care. Sunset Lake CBD is my jam. You guys know it. It's a farmer-owned company. We love our farmers uh, that shifts craft CBD. Their products go directly from their farm in Vermont that they flipped. It used to be Ben and Jerry's farm. They ship it all the way to your door. And they have all types of products. As you know, they have tinctures, which is what I use at night to sleep a full night's sleep, which I've been struggling with the last few days. Uh, they have fudge. They have a lotion. They have uh, gummies, of course. Uh, they have salve, which helps you. There's a, with, the, with beeswax and arnica, so it helps you with aches and pains. Um, I've got my family hooked on this now. Not only, okay, my mom's really into it. My aunt's really into it. Then my aunt gave it to her mother, so my great aunt is into it now. Like everybody it's, I feel like I'm in some sort of multi-level marketing <laughs> situation, but I'm not, you know, I'm just kidding. But seriously, it's, it, this is, this is how, you know, it's a good product when there are folks out there who through word of mouth, through trying a product are now ordering it and ordering it, of course, through us. Um, if you don't know about it, you definitely want to check out sunsetlakecbd.com. They're a great company. Not only do they, are they farmer owned, but, uh, when you support them, you're actually supporting 
rural communities and rural economies. And they're they're creating meaningful employment in their community. And their minimum wage is $15 an hour. But on top of all that, the employees own the majority of the company, which is crazy. That's amazing. That's like a brilliant business model. I'm, I'm very impressed by it. Um, and on top of all that, they support, they really support independent media. And I cannot emphasize how much that makes a difference when you're still not big enough to get the big companies coming in and uh, have one of those media companies that are selling your ads. But this is when you actually need the money to be able to hire staff and keep the the infrastructure going. And of course, if you're an independent media on the left, uh, it's of course harder to fight the algorithms. So we are really grateful to Sunset Lake CBD. They support us. They support the David Pakman show. And of course, the majority report. Sam was the first one who got me on uh, CB and I am forever grateful. Uh, You too can... uh, receive the benefits that we get by going to sunsetlakecbd.com. You will get 20% off of your entire order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. I think I'm going to be ordering some gummies. I think that's my my next... I, I took a break, but they're so delicious. Um, I think that's my next thing because uh, I got to get back into my routine and the tincture is almost out. I got to get another one of those. Um, but the gummies, I really love them. And I feel like the fudge, I can't stop eating. I can't stop eating the gummies either, but the fudge is more dangerous. It's delicious. It's very good, but it's more dangerous. So if I'm going to pick my sweet, I think the gummy is the way to go. All right, go check it out. Sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi and OMI and you'll get 20% off your entire order. We'll be right back with our fabulous panel. I'm afraid the cancer has spread throughout your entire body. Your heart and lungs are barely performing their functions. Based on this, I believe you have no more than two weeks left to live. I'm sorry, but it's well past my bedtime. Goodbye. Facts don't care about your feelings. So you have two weeks left to live, allegedly. Sure, let's say you have one week left to live. That's one week of labor costs at your hospital for every employee that takes care of you. That's thousands of dollars that could have been spent on bombing Iran. My master, Ben Shapiro. If healthcare is a human right, why didn't 18th century slave owners put it in the Constitution? Simply epic, sir. Let's say I'm a cat, okay? Let's say I want to eat your flesh, okay? If healthcare is a human right, which includes abortion, then logically, cannibalism is also a human right, correct? Let's say I've already consumed your whole family, Mr. Erickson. Hypothetically speaking, what can you do about it? Own him with logic, my master.
Wet ass P word. Make that pull out game weak. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, September 8th, and we are so grateful and so honored to have this esteemed panel, starting off with Run Chowdhury. He is a political filmmaker. He is formerly the first official White House videographer and creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016, and of course, the host of the committee program, which airs Mondays, 3 p.m. here on this channel. Go check out this week's episode, uh, finale of the season, I think is how we, we stay, say right. it in the It is the season the finale. Yeah. Season finale, the finale. And we're then we kind have... of we live for the drama. You know what I mean? We want the attention for it being the finale and stuff, you know. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of drama, uh, I am very honored is not the right word. What's the word to use? This transition uh, is suffering. Come on, you can do it though. Just take it, can, grab hold of it, it make it, it happen. It. Fun fact, <laughs> real yeah, fun good. fact. Perfect. We have a descendant of, of the one and only Robert E. Lee in our presence. Of course, Representative Rab. I'm waiting for that to be on your like like mailers against you in your next election. Descendant of Robert E. Lee wants to go against his own ancestors. And no, he know. needs to invent an app or something so it's not the first line in his obituary, you know? <laughs> that's, oh wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Other than being a representative of if, the beautiful if that's state. That's the of best I have at the end of my life. <laughs> I would have sad. We kid. Listen, um, as the most progressive member of the legislature in Pennsylvania, I think I think you've really turned the sh- ship around. You've, yeah. you've done good. You've done yeah, good. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> do you notice how this transition worked? Speaking of, uh, y'all may have heard that uh, Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee, his statue in Richmond, Virginia, which has been there since 1890, it is a 12-ton statue of the, quote, Confederate traitor is off the pedestal. Let's play this clip real quick.
So it's down. Um, and it was an atmosphere of joy more yeah. than I've seen. At, you know, we've all witnessed dozens of these. I will say this one really had a vibe. <laughs> it had a vibe. I mean, this is Richmond, Virginia. I, I, got, I got family in Richmond, Virginia. And let me just, my, my spoiler, they're not our people. Uh, my family in Richmond, Virginia are, are born again Christians who uh, married into some family that uh, had a wedding at a, on Robert E. Lee Drive. Uh, at a, an old plantation house with lots of interesting um, photos. It is not a town that, you know, does not take this lightly. I'll just say it that way. Um, so, I mean, like something like this is so significant to happen, right? But like, just let's, let's flash forward. So this happened, Rep. Rab. Where do we go from here? How does, how do we go from taking down the monuments to actually healing the divides that are, you cannot... You, it, it is everywhere in Richmond and, and pretty much most of the South, but. Yeah. And, and, and in Pennsylvania, we have two mm -hmm. Confederate statues. Um, I have a resolution that I'm about to reintroduce uh, um, asking them to come down. I think we have to say, where does the statue move first and foremost, right? Because if the statue is a symbol of something, that symbolism still has uh, a resonance Mm -hmm. among people who embrace it and um, equally important, those who despise it. So if we remove the symbol that causes um, so much stir, that stir doesn't go away, it gets rerouted. How do we recontextualize this statue, why it was created, what it stands mm -hmm. for, what we can learn from it? And um, you know, seeing it, I got real emotional because I spent 29 years trying to raise awareness around John C. Calhoun, the self-avowed white supremacist senator from South Carolina, for whom my residential um, uh, college was named um, after at Yale, 80 years after this guy died. He was a Yale alum. He gave very little money. He was not welcomed. Southerners were not super welcomed at Yale at that time, but they named a, they named a whole building after mm -hmm. him. And it bothered me greatly because you're talking about institutional racism so much so that it's baked into the architecture of the university where there are even stained glass windows of him standing with the Capitol behind his, uh, behind one shoulder and a groveling uh, enslaved black man at his feet, literally. And this is what I had oh to look God. at every day I went to dining hall oh my God. and I was able to get that stained glass window removed at the end of my freshman year. And I went home to my grandfolks who were community organizers in Baltimore thinking they'd be proud of me. And they said, you're creating institutional amnesia by taking these things down hmm. because then you lead people to believe that they were meant to be there, that these systems were for them and they're not. So we need to have a conversation about what those symbol symbols meant when they were created. Um, and what it means for us now, we have to have the proper context. So I don't know if it's a museum, uh, a university or somewhere where we actually re-engage in good faith about Robert E. Lee, what he did do, what he didn't do, what he believed. Um, uh, you mean, I'm sorry, a history class? Are, are you saying that we should actually fund <laughs> fucking education in our country and learn about the problem? It's crazy for me to think that, you know, we're going to educate ourselves out of these problems. But yeah. I, I do feel that. I believe well, on, we need to have that. On that 
that note, and 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 Arun, I mean, you're in a place where talk about a reeducation of people and understanding you yeah, know, yeah. in Germany. But what I find so fascinating about this whole s- situation with the monuments is how many monuments, and the Calhoun story is a perfect example, came way after you know, the civil war, they were not, I mean, Calhoun was, was never beloved. How did it happen? Where did this, 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 it it is, and it's a re-education. It's a re-whitification. I don't know what it is. An Anglo, Anglification of our country that should have never started to begin with. And I don't even know how it, 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 and it it came in waves, right? You have sort of waves of, uh, the Southern, uh, the great lost cause or whatever, kind of coming back into vogue, whether it, you know, it's uh, on the heels of birth of a nation. Uh, but I do, what I do think is interesting and why I do think this statue exactly, uh, as Rep Rob is saying, you know, maybe needs a place in museum is that this wave, this, uh, 1890, like this is a 12 ton statue. We should actually know that when they were kind of in 20th century Ku Klux Klan junk fundraising mode, those statues you could pick up by yourself and throw out basically you and a crowbar can take those things out they are cheap they do not weigh 12 tons this is actually like and so when you're talking about like what went into making this this one in richmond this gigantic 12 a lot more than went into making the ones that are in your town viewer wherever you are you know you know where two or three of them are they are made out of barely metal uh, but but this isn't. And so I do think that that you can find then behind these bigger moneyed interests, people who want to tell a story. It's not the same kind of gra- almost semi grassroots fundraising you had over the Confederate cause that kind of is more this 1911 and beyond um, wave. It's it's almost like they need to have a disclosure, just just like you know the billionaires, the Koch brothers, like to fund uh, great arts programs in New York. Now, uh, there should at least be paid for by, you know, X Y Z person. I mean, and then it was Confederate flags with like you know monster trucks on them, right? There's just waves of this stuff. It certainly is getting cheaper and less interesting as we're discussing it in this sort of weird way, uh, but. And then there's the next thing. It's the Blue Lives Matter flag. Like there's th- there's things, there's symbols, you know, they come in waves. Right. And these waves are not um, random. They come no. uh, with great social upheaval that unnerves um, the white masses. Right. The folks whose greatest um, kind of claim to fame um, is their proximity to to these notions of white supremacy. Right. 1890. Um, you're talking about after Reconstruction. You're talking about the Black Codes. You're talking about a uh, a second wave of uh, legal enslavement. Um, you're talking about uh, erecting things during the Civil Rights era to make the point: No, we're not going away. We're we're embracing the bad old days. Um, and it wasn't. They were made out of tin foil and balsa wood. To Run's point, you know. Um, it's important to understand that context. And I had to push back from the time I was 19 till my late 40s about the context around which John C. Calhoun Calhoun was given this great honor. Um, People didn't understand it, it was out of context. And people would also compare him to other folks. Oh, well, he's no different than so-and-so. And you're, you're putting a 21st century lens on a 19th century figure. I'm like, no, there were abolitionists in the 19th century. I descend from quite a few. They thought it was abhorrent then, as did white abolitionists. This is not a 21st century lens. This is um, comparing apples to apples. Um, and 
So, so how, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say that um, we talk about other symbols that uh, arise in these social upheavals. Um, we can call them the last death pangs of white supremacists. Um, I have a colleague, a very conservative Democrat um, from rural PA, who just mm. um, uh, reannounced his Blue Lives Matter caucus. He's, this is a, a Democrat. And I sent an email to every single Democratic member and their staff saying, this is abhorrent and this is unacceptable. If you want to have issues to discuss law enforcement, there is already an affinity caucus to do that. And this does not align with the professed values of the House Democratic Caucus of Pennsylvania. This stuff is yeah. not a Southern thing. This thing is proximity to uh, socially acceptable white supremacist thought. Right. Even and if the, the Klan is not a Southern not thing. Believing. Right. Like the Klan has had more membership in Pennsylvania than in most places in the South for most of its existence. You know, that's right. So um, either one of you uh, wants to chime in, but I, I do want to get to kind of how Germany dealt with uh, their dilemma. Yeah, I mean, but wait, before we get to that, just just real quick, how how did somebody like a Calhoun um, in that particular case, because it is so egregious, it suddenly become this 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 figure worthy of. Um, yeah, because there's other if you're just looking for like, you know, uh, an old guy to like to, to rehabilitate, he's a strange choice because it's a great question. It's a great question. No, no, this is a wonderful question. And one I've been fielding for two decades now, three decades. It's very simple. And it was enshrined in the documentation of the Angel Committee. That was the president of Yale University at the time, where a bunch of old white guys got together to come up with names. And they settled on him because he was the most influential Yale alum of the 19th century. They, they didn't say the best. For good or bad. <laughs> exactly. But here's, the, here's why all this hue and cry around diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important. If you have a bunch of grumpy old white guys, right, it's garbage in, garbage out. They're only going to consider men. Obviously, alums are only men at that time until 1970. Um, you're going to consider people who are the most powerful in the most narrow, in pernicious ways. You're not going to consider white supremacist uh, thoughts as negative because they were actually espoused um, quietly or boldly by the university, whether it was his kind or some other kind. And let's remember, eugenics was big in the 1930s. Uh, part of the, the core of, of white supremacy in the Southern aristocracy was saying these folks are less than, they're not really human. And they try to come up with all kinds of ways, even to justify coming up with the disease, uh, is it draptomania? Uh, uh, black folk who sought to uh, free themselves. They call that a disease. Um, so in, in that context, why wouldn't you choose the most influential um, Yale alum of the 19th century, who was arguably this man who was uh, Secretary of War, Vice President, U.S. Senator, and um, was one of the, the leading voices that would lead to the... the uh, to the Civil War. I don't think that probably was as high as the other ones, but still a very, very um, prominent and powerful man and its power. And that's what we these Ivies have in common you know, and other elite institutions. They have blood-stained endowments that come from the same institutions that were promoted and amplified by white supremacist thought and benefits from enslaved labor. Whether they're one of the eight Ivies or not, all of this stuff can be traced back to slavery. 
um, and white supremacy, and they all benefited. Even the white folk who did who were not wealthy benefited from that level of a white privilege that gave them something to look down on everyone else. Right. We had a uh, we actually did an interview last week on this um, specifically about how the committees that formed the education, I think the the, the entrance exams, SATs, were all based on on exactly that uh, white privilege. It was white men trying to push out anybody who did not, you know. It, whether intentional or not, and some of it was some of it was very much intentional, and some of it was just major blinders of the moment. And um, but it's you know that that is exactly the case for why critical race theory is something that is not <laughs> to be concerned by Tucker Carlson. Okay, um, so Ron, you're in you're in Germany. Uh, did they do it right? I mean, it's interesting. Like you know, people often talk about the dumb in Germany, uh, jokingly in America as an overcorrection, or you know, in these kind of ways. I think it's probably interesting to look at it in comparison to South Africa. So in Germany, you do have a lot of awareness around the Holocaust, World War II, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Camps have been maintained, all of these things, um, and I think that is sort of very uh, considered to be normal and fine. But there are some things that sort of the general German population or certain elements in the German population can consider to be in their faces a bit. Some of these, some of us may consider to be the most effective. I would call out stumble stones as one, which is when you're in Berlin, there are stones that stick up about a half inch in in strange directions so that you'll trip over it. And then you look down and there's a name of a Jewish person who lived in that house. And it says, you know, their name and when they were deported and where they ended up. And, uh, you know, uh, in a very non-cynical way, I actually once uh, w- on on Kristallnacht was, you know, walking to my doctor's office and saw like three like super German guys, like definitely from out of town. Berlin famously is like this super diverse cosmopolitan place, like German guys in overalls, like being German. And they were looking at the stumble stones <laughs> and like thinking about it. And it was kind of amazing to see. Uh, and so I do think there is this sort of awareness, pushing it around. Uh, this is good. Uh, but you're asking, does it work? I mean, we can pretend America or Australia or, you know, are the neo-Nazi capital of the world, but Germany is the neo-Nazi capital of the world. They have lots and lots and lots of them here. They have a political party that flourishes. Um, So, you know, things like banning the swastika, stuff like that, you know, seems to be grabbing jello, you know, and it gets away from you the, the harder that you try to grab it. So I think there is some sense in which some very, very good things have been done. Uh, and some of these things are very effective. But if you're asking, or, or no, I mean, some of these things are seem very morally correct. And when they're in action, make you feel good. Like, you know, actually feel good. But if you're asking if it's effective, I, I'm just not sure that's true. And I do think you saw in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's sort of more of a coming together. And yes, of course, that is an incredibly biased institution, but less biased than the institution that formed Germany, which is the Cold War. The, you know, Cold War narratives have torn apart what the Holocaust and what World War II has meant from both sides right. uh, of the of the of the Iron Curtain, and has led to a, a sort of distorted narrative that I think it's hard to use just some monuments to unpick. Interesting. I mean, it's. I'm curious if there, and and this might more just be the way that the democracy is set up in in Germany. If there's a path to growth with the neo-Nazi party, you know, I'm I'm in Greece. There's there's a legitimate party called the Golden Dawn, which has gone to yeah. prison. Yeah, many uh, of them are in jail, thank God now, because thank they're God. murderers. Yeah. Also, neo-Nazis, um, the only party that has gone to prison uh in, in Europe and in I think the last hundred years. With that being said, 
there's a there's so much consciousness about that that there's a there's a ceiling and I don't know if that is the case in the U.S. because it permeates through subtlety and re-education and capital and all these different things and systemic issues in a way that, yes, you know, Joe Biden and, and neoliberals can never say that they're, you know, in bed with the far right. But someone like Joe Rogan, which we're going to talk about in a second, sure does dance a lot with the far right and has a contract with the major. Is that can that be possible in a place like Germany where there's so much opposition, there's so much consciousness of what it is and how it grows that it won't grow to that point that we have, where it just permeates every single aspect of our, our, our culture. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, that's not what I think the situation is. I okay. think the situation I is one that it develops in Europe and then will come across to America and is way farther along in Europe. In America, it's hard to have a third political party even. Uh, Georgia Maloney, who is an outright fascist in Italy, has the largest political party in Italy. Marine Le Pen, who is a terrible campaigner, if she was anyone else but her, would be the president of France. There's, uh, there's <laughs> almost no question. Um and, and in Germany, dad have the, AFD. Like the Nazis have a party. They have a party that's not Republicans. You know, they're not pretending to be in the CDU. They have parties to join all over Europe. And so I, I, I think it, it is scary. They have places to go. And will these things rise? The question isn't in this conscious cultural, um, this conscious cultural work as much as it's in austerity. You know, where did the AFD come from? Of course. From 40 years of thinking that poor people should pay the debts of rich people. That's right. Um, all right, let's shift gears just a little bit because uh, we have a pandemic that is not going away anytime soon. You thought Delta was here. Uh, there's a new one com- new one out that has hit 48 states called the Moo. Uh, Moo or me. I think it's all based on Greek letters, but I don't know if, whatever, it doesn't matter. In Greek, it's me. <laughs> in, in English, it's Moo. Um, so the Moo variant, of course, is something that as of right now, they don't think that the vaccines are going to be able to protect. But asterisk, is that, oh, if everybody got their vaccine, we wouldn't have the move variant. So Joe Rogan, just a gentle reminder to everybody who watches this show that he has a very, 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 very large contract, uh, which the amount of money he got for this contract at Spotify is enough, is is basically like, it could pay for like the education of like- I won't pay a band, four states. you know? Yeah, exactly. So he, um, he got COVID, shocker. He was a denier of COVID at one point, vaccine denier, questioner, uh, as well as masks. And uh, friends with Alex Jones, I just want to give you guys a big summary. Sure, he endorsed Bernie Sanders, but conveniently, uh, a lot of Bernie Sanders people went to go listen to his show and went down the rabbit hole, I'm sure. Um, So he has COVID and he's on the horse to warmer shit. So let's play this clip. Bro, do I have to sue CNN? I don't know. Do you? They're making shit up. They keep saying I'm taking horse dewormer. I literally got it from a doctor. It's an American company. Mm-hmm. It's a. It, they won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for use in human beings. Yeah. And CNN is saying I'm taking horse dewormer. Yeah. What? Wait, so they must he know just said that he the, was. that's a lie. Well, there's a lot of people saying it. <laughs> right, but a lot of people can say it. Okay. Yeah. Like the internet says it. Who cares? Sure. But, but CNN is right. saying it. Like Jim Acosta. Okay. Um. I, I do hope he gets better, by the way. You know what I mean? Like, it's COVID seems, it's like a horrible, horrible wasting away thing. He even sort of looks bad there, you know? 
I'm really indifferent at this point. Um, (laughs) If it means that millions of people don't get misinformation and like continue to spread this pandemic and then people who are extremely vulnerable and don't have millions of dollars to just like, uh, you know, whatever stuff he's taking in, because he's obviously on a lot of stuff as he's pumped right now. He's jacked. (laughs) No, but really, I mean... uh, that debating, like, take he he admit that he's he, he admitted that he took it, and then he's just not claiming that it's a horse dewormer, right? I guess, even though technically that's what it is, but it is recommended on the right? No connection to COVID. Yes, exactly. Some, I don't give a shit what the semantics are. The bottom line is, you're not a doctor, and I love when they do this thing where they're like, "Well, you know, do your own research," aka here, you know, follow my Twitter site and and, and go look at these like. Crazy doctors who are on the internet who deserve to lose their license. I mean, this is bottom line. I mean, we we, we understand that the horse warmer thing is is bullshit, but I'm so concerned about this because you've had people in Spotify, actual workers at Spotify, protest Joe Rogan and the misinformation and disinformation that he's spreading. You have an actual like like group of, 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 of they're saying they don't want to work there anymore because of him. He has so much power because of this disinformation. He has so much money because of, the, of course your audience is going to grow if you're spreading lies. This is part of the fascist playbook. When are we going to start to effing get this? I will say it's not new though. We see it happen now because the media monopoly has been broken in some case. You know, the, this playbook was invented uh, interestingly enough, by Freud's uh, grandnephew, uh, Edward Bernays, uh, who, while working for the tobacco industry and the bacon growers, uh, was the first guy who was like, if I can find a quack doctor to write me a, a, a shit study, I can have other people quote this, you know, and we can make sure that women smoke lucky strikes. Like, I can I can make this happen. <laughs> and, and did. And is While good. they're pregnant. And the reason sure. we don't know this history far. is because back then there was an absolute media monopoly that actually made all of this stuff seem like we lived in a in in a safe, uh, good world. So I, I, you know, I absolutely share your uh, apprehension over media disinformation, especially medical, especially during a pandemic. But I think this conversation would have been impossible, you know, uh, even just a few years ago. That it's actually we wouldn't even be talking about it because it would be effectively hidden underneath a three network uh, system. Mm-hmm. With that being said, he would have not had the platform to peer as if he's some sort of pseudo journalist. Oh, I'm just interviewing. I'm just a comedian interviewing people. I'm interviewing politicians. I'm interviewing doctors. No, but it would have been Dr. Phil doing it on Oprah instead, you know? Well, there well, was a time. See the wrong one? Now, Oz, maybe, I mean, I don't know. One of the one of these guys, yeah. I think there was a time that, that we're overlooking between Dr. Phil and now when social <laughs> media used to be called new media. Um, and there... and. When new media, um, through you know what we would call the net roots, was able to <laughs> to uh, to actually push some change, uh, they with um, they brought Lou Dobbs down yeah. um, when he was doing a lot of things that was anti-immigrant. Hey um, kids, Lou Dobbs was on CNN before he was a crazy person on Fox Business. Just right, but CNN is see the thing is what I don't like about the conversation around CNN is. CNN has a, a reputation um, as being uh, a mainstream and leader in the, in cable yeah. news, but they're an extent of all that is wrong. All that is wrong. I, I to, no to compare to to juxtapose Fox News and CNN, it, it it's like people are saying they're um, two sides of the same coin. They're on the same side of the coin. 
They are absolutely on the same side of the coin. It's, we, we're talking about uh, corporate me- media, and and we don't understand. Just like here's here's the um, the visual. The visual is whatever platform you really like, and you um, have media illiteracy. You're not stupid. You just don't know how things are connected. You don't realize that the things that your um, people are talking about are owned by the very thing that you like. Like it, it, it could be an amusement park magazine, blog, social media platform, they could be all essentially owned by the same entity. And if we don't know that, then we we rest um, our power with those folks who just want to sell us shit. And we have to do two things. And I've been saying this for over 20 years. No matter what your first issue is, whether it's um, the environment or gender equity, your second and third um, issues have to be electoral reform and media reform. And when I mean reform, I mean more transformation than, than actual kind of tweaking things. It, we need to blow it up. Yeah. And, and we both can't those things are headed in the wrong direction. Was that a run? Well, both those things are headed in the wrong direction. And we even see that, you know, like Alex Jones show, the things that actually will us, advertise him still are insane. But know? that's like, a good thing. The reason it's a good thing uh, is because it is a... It is a recognition of how scared the right is, that the only way they can win is to cheat by suppressing votes and by making it harder for everyone to vote, right? Um, that lets us know what, what they're really focusing on and why. Because all of the things they haven't gotten done yet, they will get done through these voter suppression uh, oh, absolutely. Um, mandates. And that should be a reminder to us that whatever we care about, we have to talk about electoral and voting rights and understand how the media is complicit. When I say the media, the corporate media, when we talk about independent media, folks like you all, that's where the real power is. And that's where we need to draw on and amplify it so that we have a fighting chance. And we're, I mean, and, and, you know, all of us have been in this game for a while and we all laughed when when you mentioned Netroots because we're, the three of us, we're in the Netroots gen. it, there was a different time. There was a different time when yeah. uh, you could float on MSNBC, always corporate media, and you could go on and 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 your blogs and your videos would be shared and you'd get sometimes millions and millions of, of views. But it's completely consolidated now. And it, it is absolutely, they're putting, it's like the, the pressure is on to keep the left out of the suggestions. Five years ago, you know, the our shows, all the left shows would pop up in the algorithm. You'd watch one show and, and then you'd get another one. Now it's, you watch CNN, as Brad said, and the next video you get is Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, the number one show on Facebook. And the next is, is Don Bongino. And then what comes after that? It's like, if you watched Joe Rogan, then you get Alex Jones. You don't yeah. get, you don't get Sam Cedar. All roads you lead to Jordan Peterson online, actually. Within exactly. four clicks, you end up on a Jordan Peterson video, it's, just no matter what you're watching. You're watching a Fidel Castro speech. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. that's where you end up. It's four degrees. It's like, forget about six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's four degrees of Jordan Peterson. That is what that is. That is ultimately the universe that we're in right now. And and you know, there's you hear lots of commentary. Oh, it's because you know there's plenty of attacks and trolls that are out there. The truth is, there's just if you're going against capital, they're going to do whatever they can to prevent an uprising that happened at such a fast pace that they were they were not prepared for it. So on one hand, yes, the right wing, you know, is scared and and they're doing all they can with voter suppression laws. But they also saw demographics. This isn't something that they came out of nowhere to see that the, the, the rise of social media creating 
you know, uprisings and educating folks. And a lot of that is also circumstantial. It's because of income inequality and, you know, failed wars and, and, and kids coming out of college and not having an op, you know, if they went to college and if they went into debt, not having an opportunity. Um, I don't know. I mean, social media was a conversation that helped facilitate that. I don't think that this movement wouldn't have existed independent. I mean, I think it would have existed independent of social media. And I think the right wing always saw that coming. I think the Bush brothers always saw that the country was becoming more diverse and they were trying to prepare for it. But simultaneously, when all these crises happen at once that were fertile ground for extremism, which has always been the case, pre-social media, pre-media, it's always been the case for, for extremism. And capital, of course, is always going to side with the right. It's never going to side with the left. And so they're going to do whatever they can to suppress, but it's not going away. So, I mean, yes, they're scared, Rep. Rab, but I think they just realize that it's a demographic scheme and they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that they keep power for the next 20 years until they can come up with their next, you know, strategy. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I mean, no, but then we'll be underwater. And it's aggressive recruiting of the youth. That's what the strategy yes. has to be for growth for the right wing. And you know, that's why people like me are sounding off alarms on eco-fascism and things like that's, this. But like, uh, I do think that's the big play. They need they need young, young, healthy. It's it's, white it's why the gamer community. It's the gamer community moves over. It's why someone like Hassan Piker is so powerful and and people are writing about him is because he's trying to move people out of that space. You know, Sam Cedar's been doing that for 10 years. He's been trying to move people out of the space of Jordan Peterson's and Ben Shapiro's and all them, um, the intellectual dark web. And I, unfortunately, it's a male-dominated space. So we were just trying to educate those who are already in the space to be better leftists. But I'm sorry, Rip Rab, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I, I don't think that... Uh we have won this battle by any means, but the demographic um, kind of uh, uh, tea leaves do not look good for the traditional Republican base. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity for people who are now uh, potentially overrepresented um, to have more power and speak up because frankly, the, the savior for all of this is not the Democratic Party. All right. I mean, that's it. It's it's uh, to be clear. It um, the Democratic Party is um, it's the party of last resort, right? Because we don't have a the way it's set up now. Um, we don't have a better home collectively um, in the in the electoral space in the electoral space, and because so much of this is. Um, disaggregated along state lines, um, it's not going to happen on a national level. It's going to happen locally. Like here in Philadelphia, we have our first um, third party um, city councilwoman, Kendra Brooks, who won in 2019. She killed it as a member of the Pennsylvania Working uh, Families Party. And um, she, she won big. She's the first third party in over 100 years to win. Um, so there are ways for that to happen in uh, in cities and potentially states, um, but we have to start. I think we have to start hyper local and work up. A lot of us like to start in the White House, which it is so incredibly annoying, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so annoying, and lacks the, the it lacks any kind of respect for our adversaries who got it right when they were taking over school boards. Totally. In all of these local totally. elections, and moved that's up. Right. There's nothing that's gonna you're gonna talk about on the national level that I haven't seen in Pennsylvania first. 
But also with that being said, that's partially because the party was not a vibrant party. That was, I mean, this goes back to my, my never ending uh, conversation about how the democratic party does not put its resources into uh, building a bench. They don't have, Mm -hmm. they don't have a party. It's not a party. It's, it's, it's a, it's it's a floor at the DNC in which most of the time people are just raising money to go to a couple consultants that are rotating in and out for the presidential yeah, yeah. campaign. It's a constellation of companies who all have a common market. Yes. That's right. That's right. So with that being said, I will just add one note to that. If there is another party, I believe that you know you have to have democratic principles too. And so, yes, it's great to get elected in another line. What kind of party is it? Are there, is there, I mean, we don't want to fall for the same we don't want to fall into the same patterns that the Democratic Party did, which took them a lot longer to, to do so. I mean, we're a new movement for the mm. most part, electoral movement. The, the left is like rising and a lot of young people have never been involved in politics and are working on campaigns. There's a lot to be learned and we're learning very quickly. And sometimes it's it's difficult, um, you know, the lessons that we have to learn. But simultaneously, we don't want our new institutions, which we're building, to end up doing exactly what the Democratic Party did and Namely's listed and, and you know, HRs, all these different organizations. Yes, but you also don't want to be like, you know, Bernie 2016, which at some point was hamstrung because people didn't yeah. have political chops, right? They didn't know how to handle those big conversations and make sure they kind of got, we got our fair share uh, at the table because they didn't know what the conversation was. So I do think right. it, it is a combination of grassroots, but then also some of, some of that old school political know-how. Uh, and to Rep. Rob's point, that doesn't come from sort of, you know, fancy pants consultants, you know, exactly. myself included, you know, uh, of the people who do this. It comes you don't from, have fancy pants. From gra- pants. I'm not, I, no, my pants are not fancy. Let's be clear. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it, com- it will come from grassroots organizers, people who are working on the ground, people who have figured things out because, because they are doing it. Uh, but, I mean, it's tricky. It's, it, it's any kind of new party... For instance, Cinquestella, who I'm not comparing to, uh, you know, the left-wing Democratic uh, Party movement as they are an, uh, an ideologically flexible party, but they were a new party in Italy in reaction to austerity, uh, kind of environmental and a bit populist and all like mushed together. But their thing was they made collective decisions and they had this computer program called Russo and they, you know, uh, and, and recently to sort of survive, they have scrapped all of it. And uh, Giuseppe Conte is now the leader of the party and never had a leader before. And they are instituting hierarchy and they are making a very normal party out of their party in response to something. So I do think that we should keep our eye, you know, on some folks who maybe try overcorrecting right away and and run into trouble for it. We, we need to have, you know, democracy, principles of democracy, in my opinion, but we have to be nimble. We can't get caught up in convert. I mean, I love DSA, but I've been to uh, quite a few conventions in which, you know, there's there's almost days worth of arguments over uh, a line item or whatever. I mean, it's, it's over many different kinds of things, for many say. different kinds of things as literally the earth is burning down. We're so, left. you know, how do we, we are on the left, but how do we remain nimble and so that we're responsive, but also democratic. And it's not like you have some benevolent dictator. By behind selling the newspapers outside sporting events. That's how it's done. <laughs> that was a good one. That's the audience. <laughs> on that note, uh, Arun Chowdhury, where are you right now? What, I'm in Bologna. Uh, one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, my God. Amazing. Um, Rep Rab, Pennsylvania. I'm in Philly. You're in Philly. 
<laughs> Fabulous place. Uh, I bid adieu. I will actually not be here uh, very soon. I've been in Greece for a very long time. And, you know, I will I will say on Friday for our entire audience what's been going on. I have a whole thing I'm going to be talking about. But um, it's it's going to be a fun conversation for Fun Friday. So I will soon be on your continent, Rep Rob, and we can catch up. Oh. In the meantime... And then you'll start making me stay up until midnight to be on the show as opposed to this beautiful sort of afternoon settings that I've come to really enjoy. (laughs) The last month for me has just been fabulous. This no male relationship is really just really gone through the roof. I don't know why you'd waste it all on a trip back home, but whatever, you know. You know, I gotta, I gotta, I need Wi-Fi. I need like work. This Wi-Fi is like the best I've had this entire trip. I'm like, you know a run. When you're on the road, you're like you you talk to the people, you're like, how strong is your Wi-Fi? And then you have this whole conversation. It's yeah. great. We've never had any complaints. You're like, what's the level? And then they're like, oh, yeah, it's all. Mm. Yes. That is a whole lesson in like, like if you are studying a language and you're ready to move to the country, you need to learn the cultural, like the business link, like how to negotiate in that country, like how to get a table in that country, which in Greece, here's the trick for everybody. If they say it's not possible, say, can you just double check? And then they're like, no, 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 it's not. Just do me a favor. Just double check. That's how you get them. You just, you just got to ask like three times. That's it. Interesting. Be tough. Be tough. <laughs> All right. Side note. Um, you guys are great. Have a wonderful, wonderful Wednesday. And Brad's going to yell at me because I keep hitting the table and making noise. I apologize. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Ciao. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of The Nomiki Show. Uh, we will be back on Friday. Go check it out. Fem Friday. Got lots to discuss. It's going to be a very lively show. In the meantime, go check out the committee program, which is on Monday, the season finale. Uh, and be well. Stay safe and stay in solidarity. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show.